aware that there is a married couple's luncheon coming up on March 11th. So if you're married, is anybody married here? Awesome. So if you're married, uh, you and your spouse are invited to the couple's lunch on March 11th. Sign up to bring a dish to share. And uh, you can go to calvarymiami.com uh, forward slash events to sign up for that. Um, you may have seen the Train Up a Child Parenting Seminar that we've uh, had slides for and announcements for. Well, today's the last day to sign up. So uh, I would encourage you, if you haven't signed up already, there's, there's a lot of people that have signed up, but there's still some space. So um, just if you haven't signed up and you are uh, married wanting to have kids or maybe you're going to have grandkids soon, I'm, I'm sure there's going to be something for everybody. I'd encourage you uh, to sign up to that. Um, also, the Ladies' Valentine's Day Barbecue, uh, February 14th. Today's the last day to sign up for that as well. Um, so the, the ladies' ministry is hoping, hosting a barbecue dinner. I guess the men's ministry had too many steaks, and so now we have to set, offset the balance. Uh, the ladies want steaks too. Uh, so uh, February 14th for ladies in sixth grade and up. And then a men's retreat, um, if you haven't signed up for that, uh, please sign up. Uh, it's March 23rd through 25th. It's going to be a huge blessing. I'm excited. God's doing some awesome stuff in preparing for that. And... Um, all of that, you can sign up at calvarymiami.com forward slash events. calvarymiami.com forward slash events. Um, that being said, why don't we go before the Lord in prayer, and, uh, and then we'll jump into the Word. God, thank you so much for uh, this opportunity. Thank you so much for your Word, Lord. There is um, so much, Lord, for us, and, and I, I, I don't... Uh, I, I just pray for help. I pray for you to, to speak, Lord, for me to not interfere with what you're doing, uh, Lord, and uh, for you to be glorified and exalted, um, for you to take things and put them together, Lord, um, by your spirit and speak to our hearts. Uh, Lord, you know that we need you. Uh, I, I know that this, this, at least this passage is for us tonight. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Um, when I was asked to share, I started praying and saying, Lord, what would you have me to share? And with my, uh, with my family in the mornings, I go through, oh, if you need a Bible, raise your hand and one will be provided for you. A Bible is very important at church. You want to bring one. And, uh, but don't be ashamed if you have to raise your hand because sometimes I have left my Bible in the car and I don't want to get up and go over there and get it. And raising your hand is the right move on that one. So uh, no shame. Um, I go through the I read the Bible with my family in the mornings, and when I came to this passage in uh, Mark, well, we're going to be in John, but when I came to this passage in Mark, it's, it, you know, I was very ministered to by it, and I, at that moment, I'm like, this is what I'm going to share on, and then I started studying it in, in more detail, and then, to God's glory, right, if you follow the daily reading plan that we're doing as a church, it's, in, it's one of the passages that's for reading today, so I'm like, I knew this was what I was supposed to read. So um, let's go to John chapter 12. The reading plan was in Matthew, but it, this, this particular passage is repeated in, all, in three of the four Gospels. And each one has a specific and unique insight into what was taking place there. I'd kind of like to use John chapter 12 as the platform uh, to jump off of, and we're going to be reading from, mostly from there. But I also brought along what you would call a harmony of the Gospels. And so that's when somebody takes the Gospels and they try to put it together as one book and communicate it. You know, like this portion is from this one. This one's called The Life of Christ in Stereo. We don't have it in the bookstore. I said that just so that uh, Chris Sierra has a lot of people asking for a book that we don't have. 
Um, but you can get it. You can get it elsewhere. Um, and, but maybe he'll get it because I because I did this. But um, I didn't tell him in advance that I was going to do this, so it's not his fault. It's totally mine. But it's called The Life of Christ in Stereo, um, and I've, I've really been blessed by this one. It's just the Bible, but just kind of arranged so that the, the narrative of all the Gospels are put together in, in, into one story. And it was particularly helpful for this. So I'm going to read from this book, and then I'm going to jump to John chapter 12. Because the only other way I could think of doing that was to read it in all three Gospels. And I don't know if I, I could do that. Uh, so we're going we're gonna to do it this way. Now the Jews, the Jews' feast of unleavened bread called the Passover was at hand, and many went up out of the country of Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. And they were looking, therefore, for Jesus and kept saying among themselves while standing in the temple, what do you think, that he will not come at all to the feast? For the chief priests and the Pharisees had issued a command that if anyone knew where he was, he should make it known that they might arrest him. So Jesus, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany where Lazarus was, who had died and whom he had raised from the dead. And there at Bethany, while they made him a supper, therefore in the home of Simon the leper, Martha was serving, but Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. Mary, therefore, taking an alabaster flask of costly ointment and a pound of pure nard, came up to him as he reclined at the table and breaking the flask, the flask poured it over his head, and she anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the aroma of the ointment. And when his disciples saw this, some became indignant and said within themselves, For what is this waste of ointment? So we'll stop there and we'll kind of jump into the passage. It's kind of worth noting for the sake of context. If you look at John chapter 11, uh, in verse 55, it says, The Passover of the Jews was near, and many went from the country up from Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. So Jerusalem was full of people. Um, there would be two to three million Jews that would gather there because in the Old Testament, it was required of uh, the Jewish men to go down to Jerusalem for the Passover, for three feasts. And the Passover was one of the most, was the most important one. So, you know, if you're choosing three, there's three, you know, you're, you're very likely to choose Passover as one of the times that you go down there. But imagine this, this city of Jerusalem swelling to a population of two to three million people. And so the people are going down there, but they're just talking about Jesus, because they're coming from all around Israel, and Jesus' ministry has been all around Israel. And this is the last week of his ministry uh, here on earth. Um, and so they're talking about him. They sought Jesus. They spoke among themselves as they stood in the temple. What do you think? Will he not come to the feast? I haven't seen him. You know? And so they're, uh, now both the chief priests and the Pharisees had given the command that if anyone knew where he was, he should report it, that they might seize him. So Jesus is a wanted man. Um, but the problem that the Pharisees and the chief priests have is that they're afraid of the multitudes. The common people loved Jesus. They loved to hear him speak. You know, when they, uh, the chief priests and Pharisees sent people to go take Jesus captive, they went to go find him in the synagogue and they heard him preaching. They're waiting for him to finish. And they come back empty-handed. And the Pharisees said, Where, where's Jesus? I sent you to go get Jesus. And they said, I've never heard, have you ever heard him speak? I've never heard anybody speak like him. No one has ever spoken with such words of authority and grace. And so the words and the heart that came from Jesus had such power, such anointing, that the common people loved him. They knew that he was speaking from the Lord, that this was God's words among man. 
But the chief priests hated him. They hated him because it being Jesus, and he, he seeing the hearts of men, he saw the hypocrisy that was within their hearts. He saw how they would fake it. He saw how they, they're motivated by their own self-aggrandizement. Uh, you know, they wanted, they wanted to look good in front of people, and Jesus would expose it. I mean, he exposes it for them to repent, right? That's why he exposes anything in our hearts. Whenever he points out something in you, it's for you to come and bring it before him and to repent and say, Lord, I've sinned against you. Please forgive me. But he would expose it in their hearts. And rather than let go of their sin, they would double down on their sin, double down on their pride and say, we just got to get rid of this Jesus guy. Everything was fine before Jesus showed up. And so that's the, that's the, uh, the environment that we find ourselves in when we come to this passage here. It says it was, uh, it lets us know that six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany. And, and Bethany means, it's kind of like uncertain what it might mean, but people think that it either means house of dates, as in the date that you eat, not like the date that you go on on Valentine's Day, but um, house of dates, or, and I, I thought this was quite a, like a, like a, like a, like a broad uh, definition. It's either house of dates or house of misery. So I don't know if like dates involve misery or something. Maybe if you ate too many dates. Um, but if you go there now and you look at uh, the place, it, it, it was occupied by a small Arab town called, I can't, I can't pronounce, I don't speak Arabic, but they changed the name to El Lazare. And, and it's, it's, it's named after Lazarus. Uh, and so uh, when, when, uh, when you go there, it's this, uh, not a lot of people. It's on the other side of uh, the Mount of Olives. So you've got Jerusalem, the Kidron Valley, Mount of Olives. You go on, keep going, and then it's right there. It's like two miles away from Jerusalem. It's a brisk walk. Most of us can probably walk from Jerusalem to this uh, town of Bethany. And when Jesus arrived into Jerusalem, rather than stay in Jerusalem, overcrowded with people and a lot of them wanting to kill him, he would every night walk the two miles over to Bethany and hang out with his friends that lived there. Um, Simon the leper lived there. Mary, Martha, and Lazarus lived there. And it seems that he would prefer to dwell there. He would rather dwell in this house of misery and depression with people that loved him, with people that he had spent time with, that had welcomed him and received him. He'd rather be there, right, than in Jerusalem. And he would spend the night there. And Maybe that's part of the problem, that when the Pharisees were looking for him, they, couldn't, they didn't know when to arrest him at night because when he was at night, he wasn't in, in the city, and they didn't know it. So I was reminded of Jesus' willingness to humble himself. In Philippians 2, verses 3 through 8, it says that for us, nothing should be done in selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look not only for his own interest, but also for the interest of others. And let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but he made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, and coming in the likeness of men, and being found in the appearance of a man, he humbled himself, and became obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross." And we get uh, a picture of the people that were living here, um, but, but we also get a picture of the people that were attending this, this dinner feast, right? I don't know why they met in the house of Simon the leper. I can make a few guesses, and part of it is that he was called Simon the leper. 
If he still presently had leprosy, he probably would have been living in a colony somewhere, unclean, unable to come to his home or his house. But by God's grace and mercy, we find a leper living back in his house. There is no cure for leprosy. But Jesus healed many lepers. And, and it would seem to me a, not, a, not a big jump to say that very likely Jesus healed this man, Simon, of leprosy. It doesn't say that it was Simon the leper's house here, but it does say that in Matthew, and it also says that in Mark, that he was in the house of Simon the leper. And also in attendance to this would be Martha, who was doing what she loved. She was serving Jesus, serving him food, serving the dinner. That was her gifting. That was her heart. That was her passion. Um, I think it's incredible to think of the fact that the last time, you know, we saw Martha, uh, she was at a tomb, at a gravesite, um, because uh, her brother had died. And they, they called out to Jesus, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Well, Lazarus was already dead. But the, the sisters sent a message to Jesus saying, can you please come? Lazarus is sick. He's dying. And Jesus tarried a few more days. And then when he came, Lazarus had died. And Martha said to him, Lord, if you had been here, he would, have, he would not have died. He said, Martha, if you believe in me, I am the resurrection and the life. Your brother will live. Do you believe this? I believe you're the Christ. And he went through the same thing again with, with Mary. And, and now he went into the town of Bethany, went out of the city to the tombs, and he was led to where the, the grave of Lazarus was, and he cried out, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus came out. And Lazarus came out a celebrity because everybody wanted to talk to him. Everybody wanted to, to meet him, and all the chief priests wanted to kill him. Uh, because he was a living, walking testimony of the reality and the power of Christ, as are some of you, as are hopefully all of you. A living, walking testimony of the fact that Jesus is real, that he can take that which is dead and bring it back to life again. And, and, and so that Lazarus is sitting there at the table with him. Martha, who, you know, we remember when she was serving and, and, and she's getting angry at her sister, because her sister's just sitting at the feet of Jesus and listening and, and receiving from him and enjoying his presence. She's like, Jesus, won't you even tell her to work? I mean, she's doing nothing, just sitting there. Tell her to get up and help serve. And he said, I'm not going to rebuke her. She's chosen the better part, Martha. You're, you're busy about a lot of things, worried about a lot of things. But she's chosen the better part, and what she's chosen will not be taken from her. And so he rebukes Martha. But you know what's great is now we see Martha serving again, but with a better heart. She's still serving Jesus, but she's not resenting the people that aren't there next to her helping lift her hands. You know, she's grateful that she has an opportunity to serve Christ and to serve others there at the table. You see Lazarus, who was resurrected. He was sick, uh, and he had died, and he had been brought back to life again. I, 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 I mean, I'm kind of, as I've been studying this passage, just... I want to be there at that dinner party. What was it like? What was it? What was it like hanging out with Lazarus after he came back from the dead? You know, would he not stop talking about how awesome it was in heaven, or or was it so awesome that he felt I can't do justice to what I saw? Was he like Paul saying it wouldn't be lawful for me to say the things I saw up there? Would he sometimes? Would you be talking to him and would he drift off thinking about the things that? that was waiting on the other side of eternity? You know, what an incredible 
group of people to have here, a, a leper that was healed, a man that was brought back to life, this incredible servant, Martha, serving the meal. And I would assume that Simon the leper's house was large enough to hold all 17 of these people. You know, maybe that's why they met in Simon the leper's house and not in Mary, Martha, and Lazarus's house. Because there's about seven, at least a minimum of 17 people at this dinner party. And so as they're there, there's, there's one more person, and it is Mary. Mary, who all that we see about Mary is that she loved to sit at the feet of Jesus. She enjoyed his presence. She delighted herself in his presence. She couldn't get her, you couldn't get her away from, from him. And she loved him so much. I mean, he had brought her brother back to life again. So you imagine the pain and the suffering of death and loss. And then to have Jesus come and say, I have the victory and the power over that. What that does to a heart, that's not something you easily forget. And she's there and she's just overflowing with, with joy and gratitude and love for her Savior. And it's a remarkable thing as you read this passage and the other passages because it would look like that while Jesus has been saying for the last I don't know how long, but it's been several times that he's been telling his disciples, guys, listen to me. I'm going to Jerusalem. They're going to capture me, imprison me. They're going to beat me mercilessly, and they're going to crucify me and kill me. And I'm going to be buried. And for three days, I'm going to be buried, but don't be afraid or worried. I will rise again. And while his disciples have no idea what he's talking about, they don't understand it. His disciples don't understand it. His leadership team, they don't get it. Mary, it seems, does. She understands at least that he's dying, that her opportunity to be able to physically minister to him, to do something great for him, is limited. And while she's sitting there, I don't know if she planned it, I don't know if she brought it with her. I mean, it seems pretty big to try to hide a pound of costly spikenard. Or if she went to her house real quick while everybody's talking, she goes to grab it, then she comes and brings it back. This costly oil in an alabaster box was made from a stone that they found in Egypt, uh, a town in Egypt called Alabastron, and it was easy to make boxes and perfume vessels out of, so the most costly perfumes were made and formed and put into this box. The way that we have it now, you know, you have the screw on top and you could just close it, you know, and, and use a little bit later. But back then, they didn't have that. They hadn't invented that yet. So you would seal it in there so it would be preserved. And then when you were ready to use it, you would break the seal and you would use it all at once. But we're going to learn, ironically, from Judas Iscariot that this was really, really costly. It was very expensive. Uh, you, you, you can read there, it says, verse 4. Verse 3, Mary took a pound of very costly spikenard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrant oil. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, who would betray him, said, Why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? 300 denarii, I mean, that's, a denarius was about how much you would pay a, a, the daily laborer, uh, like for a full day's work. 300, that's... It's almost a year's worth of, of work. That's a pretty expensive bottle of perfume. 
you know, what's a year's worth of work here? I looked it up, and by some records, the Department of Labor says the median uh, income in the United States for 2022 is $54,000. So that's a bottle of $54,000 worth of perfume. You know? That's crazy. And so at some point as she's here, and her heart is overflowing, and she's listening. Nobody else is listening. She's listening. And she realizes that her time with Jesus is limited, She wants to do something for him that she knows she won't be able to do later. And, you know, I I, I have the the privilege of being present at uh, some of the harder times in people's lives in the church. And I've been in a lot of funerals. And and when you hear a eulogy or someone say a eulogy where you're supposed to speak well of the person that's passed away, it's not uncommon to hear them say something like, tell the the people that you love that you love them treasure, value the people that you have around you because you don't know how much time you're going to have with them. You know, and you hear something like that and it's so heavy, it's so weighty because they're experiencing the pain of grief and loss. You want to just call your loved ones and just tell them, you know, go home and hug, hug you, know, you know, your kids and your wife. And, and here that's very similar, the heart going on inside of Mary. I'm not going to be with him forever. He's going to be going soon. He's talking about how it's going to be any day. And he's, he's, he's different. There's a, little, there's a difference in his, in his voice, in his attitude, in the way that he's doing ministry. When he was going to Jerusalem, he said his face was set like flint to go to Jerusalem. You know, he steeled himself for the suffering that was ahead of him. And as she's listening to him and her heart is overflowing with love, she goes and grabs this incredibly expensive perfume something that was so valuable that it would often be an heirloom. It would be passed on from generation to generation. You'd save it, and, and one day in your old age, if you desperately needed some money, you could go and sell the, the, the oil and get money so that you could get out of this desperate situation that you'd be in. Or you would use it on the most important day of your life. You know, if you were getting married, you'd break it, and you'd commonly they'd use it during your, your, your marriage so that you'd have this incredible fragrance. Or you'd use it when somebody whom you dearly loved died to embalm them. And so she sees what's going on. She recognizes the the, the, the time. And she goes and she offers this up to the Lord. And it says that she poured it. She broke it. So she's never going to get to use that again. She can't save some of it for later. You know, she breaks the seal. She pours it on on his head and anoints his feet. And as he has... The, the, the oil, you know, over his head, over his feet. It, she does something very unusual, which is she lets down her hair and she wipes the oil from his feet using her hair like a towel. That wasn't common. That was very, very unusual. But it was an expression of her love. It was an expression of her saying, I'm, I'm offering up this gift before you and I'm also wanting some of the fragrance of what I'm offering before you to be able to take it home with me. That she could remember the the offering or the gift that she's given up to the Lord. And it's sweet and it's and it's 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 awesome in, in the, the truest sense of the word. It's it's intimate, it's personal, and everybody there is seeing it, and it's just like a whoa moment. It's powerful. The whole house is filled with the fragrance of her offering, you know. 
And if you hear that and you think, wow, what an incredible demonstration of love. What an incredible offering to the Lord. I think it's worth letting the weight of that magnitude just kind of rest on your shoulders for a bit. Do I love the Lord like that? Am I grateful for what he's done? Do I remember what he saved me from? The life that he's given me, the healings that he's given me, the salvation that he's given me. Is my heart desperate to find something to give to him, to show him how grateful I am? I like that he's going to say to Judas and his disciples, she has done what she could. Her heart was overflowing to such an extent, this is all that she could give. And she gave it. And, and, and as we look at something like that, and we would think, and there would be, you know, I don't know. I don't know what kind of silence would be on the room when something like this happens. What kind of tears would be flowing from her, from Jesus? That it's like a, like a record scratch, you know? That somebody steps in. We, I wanted to go to John 12 because it tells us in John 12 that it was Judas who started it. But if you go to Mar- Matthew, if you go to Mark, all the other disciples joined in on it. His attitude, his heart kind of infected everybody else. But his response is absolutely shocking. Because he sees what happens. And he sees her demonstration of love and her offering. And he says, what a waste. Whoa. What a waste. What a waste that she would give so much to Jesus. What a waste that such, so much would be would be just spent all and gone for what? For some kind of weird demonstration? Look, you know, we could have made better use of that. Let's, let's talk about numbers here. $50,000 can help a lot of poor people, you know? And not, not only was he feeling this kind of really, really um, nasty, like it's ugly, right? It's really, this is probably the, one of the ugliest Things you see coming out of the disciples. It's right alongside them arguing about who's going to be greatest when he's telling them he's going to die. You know? But here, you know, you see him from from the ugliness of his own heart saying that this which is offered to the Lord is a waste and nothing that is offered to Jesus is a waste. You could give Jesus everything that you have and all that you have and your life with it for the rest of your life and it would not be enough. He deserves more than that. He deserves everything. Nothing that's offered to the Lord is a waste. It says in Mark chapter 14, verse 4, that they were indignant. That word means to be greatly afflicted, indignant, much and sorely displeased. It means affected at once with anger and disdain. They said that this was a waste. And then it says also in Mark 14, verse 5, that they criticized her sharply. That's a word that means to snort with anger, to have indignation. There's a rage going on, to sigh with distress or embarrassment. Can you imagine to break that silence with, oh, unbelievable. You're wasting all that on Jesus? What a reflection of the heart that should be in the disciples. Mary's heart should be how the disciples feel but it's not. 
And if you read the other passages, it really sounds like the other disciples kind of gang up on her. It sounds like they all kind of join in and they're all just kind of getting louder and louder and they all kind of get in. Yeah, you know, why'd you do that for? You could have just did it. And, and you, almost, you can almost see Mary's spirit getting crushed. You could see, and, and it would be a tragic or a sad thing, right, for those who offer up an offering to the Lord, an extravagant offering to the Lord, to be silenced by the carnal. But the carnal can be pretty loud. And I think it's important and it's wise for us to take a pause and be very careful when we criticize the extravagant offerings of worship of others. Be careful. You don't know what the heart of Jesus is on that. You don't know what, what, what that's coming from in their heart. You don't know what's coming from in, in the heart of Jesus and how he's receiving it. And so... As they're there in this situation and, 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 and you see them kind of getting louder and them kind of ganging up on her, you hear this response from, from Jesus in verse 7. It says, well, before we read verse 7, you got to look at verse 6. Verse 6 says, This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief. And he had a mon the money box and used to take what was put in it. And so it's, it's a difficult thing. We can't always expect for people to understand what we give to the Lord in worship, whether it's our time, whether it's our service, or our talent, our commitment, or our treasure, or our worship to the Lord. We can't expect people to understand it. You guys know what that's like. You try to get somebody that's an unbeliever to understand it. You're going to church on a Wednesday? Weren't you at church on Sunday? Yeah, I was at church on Sunday. Didn't you go to church to the prayer meeting on Sunday night? Yeah, yeah, I went to the church on Sunday. You're going again on a Wednesday? That's a lot of time that you're wasting. I mean, how much do you want to give to the Lord anyway? What's going on here? Like, come on, you know? Did you see the, the football game? You know, or whatever. I don't, I don't know sports, so I assume football's still on Sunday. But, you know, whatever, whatever the case is, you know? And the unbelievers don't understand it. But you know what's really hard is when Christians don't understand it. When, when somebody that, 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 that is a Christian, that, that is a disciple, that should know better, when they don't understand it, you're giving how much? You're surrendering how much of your life, of your time, of your treasure? You're going, going to a men's meeting? You're going to a women's, ladies' meeting? What are you doing, man? This is like, waste, so much waste. Like, I don't know. You're still serving? You're going there to work? Didn't you just leave work? Now you're going to go somewhere else to work? What's wrong with you? And when, when Christians don't understand it, that's, that's hard. That's almost, that's almost harder, more painful, more difficult. But I also think it's worth looking at verse 6 because you never know what's at the heart behind the people that are wanting to say negative things about the body of Christ. You look at Judas and he sounds like everything he's saying is great. It all makes sense. Right? Well, I love the poor. Don't you care about poor people? I mean, it's like he was the, I don't even know what, I don't fully know what virtue signaling is, but it sounds like Judas is the starter of that. <laughs> you know what I mean? Don't you care about poor people? You know, what are you doing? You could have done something better with this. 
But at bare minimum, this shows us that you never know what's at the heart or the motivation behind that. Sometimes, if you could see the heart, it would shock you. You'd be aghast. Because he's a thief? Because he wants it for himself? He has this attitude towards an offering that's given up to Jesus? And it makes so much sense on the outside, on the superficial That you almost are sitting back thinking, well, all the disciples are on board and Judas is on board. I wonder where Jesus is going to fall in the matter. And as he sees them all ganging up on, on this woman, he says, leave her alone. And that's, you know, you know you're in trouble when Jesus says to you, leave her alone. That's like something that you say to some, when you see some bullies ganging up on somebody. Leave, leave them alone. You know? Hey, back off. You know, and he comes to her defense. Let's go to Mark. Let's go to Matthew, chapter twenty-six. In verse 9, it says, well, look at, for the sake of um, context, look at verse 6. When Jesus was in Bethany, the house of Simon the leper, a woman came to him having an alabaster flask of costly fragrant oil, and she poured it on his head as he sat at the table. And when his disciples saw it, they were indignant, and they said, why this waste? This fragrant oil might have been sold for much and given to the poor. When Jesus was aware of it, he said to them, why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a good work for me. She's done something good for me. Nothing that's done for the Lord is ever a waste. It's, it, he's saying, essentially, he's saying, I appreciate what she's offered. I'm grateful for what she's brought here. She brought that for me. Excuse me. Back off, you know? You're making her feel bad. You should feel bad. <laughs> you know, Judas, Judas and other disciples. The poor you have with you always, but me you do not have with you always. And two things from that. I, I'm really, you know, I'm, I'm, I was, you know, I can't tell that anecdote. But um, this is not saying that Jesus doesn't care about the poor. Jesus incredibly cares about the poor. And he spent the majority of his ministry ministering to the poor and exhorting and encouraging people to not forget the poor and to minister to them and to tend to them. This is saying that communism will never work. The poor you will have with you always. And, and, and Jesus is essentially telling them, not that, that uh, what Jesus is essentially telling them is, my physical presence is not going to be here forever. If you want to do something to be a blessing to me here, there's a limited scope of time in which you can do that. You want to minister to the poor, you could do that anytime you want. But she was doing something great for me while she still could. She did what she could. You leave her alone. Because not only is what she did wonderful, incredible and amazing but she's preparing my body for burial she was doing something for him that expressed that she had a revelation of what he was saying that went deeper than anything that the disciples understood 
And assuredly, I say to you that wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. And here we are, right? 2,000 some odd years later, we're still telling people about this, we're memorializing this offering of worship that she gave to the Lord. There's a couple of reasons why the Lord had put this on my heart to share. First of all, if you're here and you want to give a lot to the Lord, I'm not asking for money. I'm saying if you're here and you give of your life and of your time or your treasure, that's between you and the Lord. But what I'm trying to say is this. Don't let people shame you for wanting to give a lot to Jesus. If people are shaming you for wanting to give a lot of yourself to Jesus, you're not the first person to go through that. It's been happening ever since Jesus was physically here on earth. And I think that one of the things that I see God doing in, 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 by God's grace and mercy, I see that there's a, there's a work that the Lord is doing. I, I sense it. I know others that sense it. We see it. God's doing a great work. And when God's doing a great work, sometimes there is an overflow of gratitude. There should always be an overflow of gratitude. But I'm so grateful for those times when we realize it, for when it touches our heart, and then you say, I want to give, I want to give more to the Lord. I want to give it all to the Lord. And so you might see that. You might sense that. And if that's on your heart, praise the Lord. Give your life to the Lord. Give your everything to the Lord. If you're here and you're not saved, you should give your life to the Lord. He deserves your life. He deserves you to surrender your everything to him. Anything less wouldn't be fitting or worthy of him. But if you're here and a believer and you're giving, there's no shame in that. The world will try to make you embarrassed and ashamed of it and say you're crazy, what's wrong with you, you go to church too much, you're serving too much, you're working hard, what are you doing? Come on. It's unbalanced. You're giving that to Jesus too? Man, nothing that's given to Jesus is wasted. And, and on the flip side, if you see somebody offering up a lot, I wanted you to have some measure of context for why it's happening. If you don't understand it, the challenge is this. If you see it and you don't understand it and you complain about it, right? You bring out to the surface this kind of attitude like Judas had of like, oh, you're wasting this on Christ. That's not exposing an issue in the person that's offering up something to the Lord. It's exposing an issue in my heart. I'm showing something in my heart that's wrong and messed up. And you might go through it. You might go through it from a parent or from your children or from your brothers, your sisters, your spouses, your family, your friends, your work, co-workers, you know. They might make you feel bad and they might gang up on you so bad that you start wondering, maybe I am wrong. Maybe I am taking this way out of hand. But you're not taking it way out of hand. The Lord is worthy of everything that you could give and more. And he's not going to despise you. He's not going to take, you know, your best or your all and just be like, is that all you got? You know, he loves you. He's incredibly blown away by that. I think of him standing with his disciples, watching the people who were giving money to the, to the temple. And they used to, in those days, have these kind of metal horns that you drop, like a funnel, right? 
so that you wouldn't drop your coins all over the place. You drop it into the funnel and it kind of jingles a little and goes down into, it would be really cool if they had the coin thing that makes it kind of circle around in the malls that they used to have. But they would have something similar with the met, uh, a metal funnel there in, in, in the temple. And he's sitting there and he's watching them kind of bringing money to the treasury. People bring in their tithe. And lots of rich people bring in lots of, lots of money, lots of wealth. This one poor widow comes with two half pennies. You know, it equals one penny. Drops it in. He says, guys, guys, come here. Look at that. Yeah, it, what, that? Yeah, look at that. She gave two half pennies. That's one whole penny. She gave more than anybody else in line. What are you talking about? Well, she gave everything she had. I think of uh, David going uh, to offer up something to the Lord because he realizes he's sinned against the Lord. He's got to give a sacrifice to God, and he goes to the threshing floor of Arowana, and while he's there, he, uh, th- this guy, he's, yeah, the king is coming. He wants my threshing floor. I'll give it to you. I'll give you the bulls. I'll give you the threshing floor. David says, no, no, no. I'm going to pay you for it. I'm going to pay you full price. God forbid that I would come to the Lord with something that cost me nothing. It should cost me something. I should feel it. Because it's an expression of my worship. And so if you're here... And you see others offering that, and you don't understand why. It's because Jesus has touched them. It's because Jesus has saved them. It's because Jesus has given them life and hope and joy and satisfaction and fulfillment. And I wanted to give context for that. Because God forbid we should ever be in a place or in a position where the the voice of those who are detractors of worship and offering and surrender would be louder than the gratitude and love of the Marys. You know? That they would be able to come and give everything to the Lord. Because I see that. I see people giving everything to the Lord. It humbles me. It humbles me. I see people giving and giving and giving their time and their heart, and it just boggles my mind. And it's a, it's a blessing. And so I, I, I thought it would be really important to go through this. And as we kind of come to a close, let's go to Romans chapter 12. verse 1, it says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Paul spent the last couple of chapters of the book of Romans giving an incredible uh, heavenly perspective of, of what it means to be a Christian and how God has saved us. It's an amazing, really thick you know, doctrinal passage, and it kind of crescendos, and as he transitions into the practical, he says, so this is what you do with the incredible glory of what I just spoke to you. Take your life and offer it up to the Lord like a sacrifice, like a living sacrifice. It's a consecration sacrifice that's being spoken of here, where they would take a bull, and they would lay him on the altar, and the whole animal would be consumed in fire. 
And it was a way of demonstrating that you were allowing your whole life to be consumed in devotion to the Lord. That whatever the Lord lays his hand upon, he can have. Because I belong to him. I have no rights left. I have no time left. It's all his time. It's a privilege that he gives me some to do other things. But it's all his. All my possessions are his. He says it's a living sacrifice. I mean, for the Jews, if they were the Jewish uh, Christians that were in Rome to read that, they would have the very visual image of the bull being dragged up and slain, a living sacrifice. That sacrifice doesn't stay living after it's been sacrificed. The sacrifice has died. And it's offered up there. And then what, what, what Paul says is, this is your reasonable service. This isn't an extravagant offering. This is the bare minimum that he deserves for all that he's done for us. And, and then he says, and this is how you do it. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Anyone who wants to save his life will lose it. But anyone who gives his life to Christ will find it. And if all these things sound kind of foreign or strange, you don't understand what it means, but it sounds like something that the Lord is maybe impressing upon your heart or you feel nervous, you've never accepted the Lord as your Savior, you wish that you knew something great and big enough, worthy of this kind of a sacrifice and surrender or purpose and significance it would give to your life, we're going to have the worship team come up. I'm going to pray. And there's going to be pastors up here that you can go and ask for prayer. Or maybe you're a Christian, you're a believer, and you want to give more of your life to the Lord. And you want to ask somebody to pray with you and to keep you accountable for that. Or maybe you've been like a Judas, criticizing the offerings of others. Critiquing what other people are giving to the Lord. And you want to repent. You could do so. You could do so in the privacy of your own heart, or you can pray with one of the other pastors that are here. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much, Lord, for this word, uh, Lord, that I know is for us, Lord. Um, I pray, Lord, that your spirit would be speaking, Lord, even as we close in a song or two of worship, Lord. Um, I pray, Lord, that if there's anyone here, Lord, that is sweating, they know that God is working in their heart and their life. They know they need to get their heart right. I pray that they would. I pray that they wouldn't leave without getting their hearts right before you. Uh, Lord, and, and to the rest of us, Lord, may you find us, please, in a place where we can give God our all, Lord, with a heart filled with gratitude and joy. Uh, Lord, may you get us there to that place, Lord. Forgive us, Lord, that we get so caught up with worldly things and worldly hearts and worldly attitudes and worldly perspectives. Uh, Lord, sanctify us and cleanse us, Lord. Uh, Lord, help us, Lord, to be able to offer up to you a pure offering of worship. Lord, show us, Lord, how you want us to come. Lord, what for us would be our version of a, a pound of spikenard, Lord, that we can pour out before you in devotion and love. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.